It wasn't like the business went to zero. It was like the business went to less than zero. (laughs) Hey, podcast listener. Even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I got the boss man here. Welcome, boss man. Yo. Today's episode, so meaty with business concepts. Listen to it. And tell me you're not going to get your ROI on some of the ideas that today's guest shares with us. After I had this conversation, Ian, we had a wonderful conversation in our office about how we could apply some of the lessons herein. Longtime friend in front of the show, on the show this week. Excited to have him back. So in today's episode, a ton of TMBA themes, including when the world throws at you a global catastrophic event, does the entrepreneur crumble? The answer is, of course, no. Even if you have an in-person events business, (laughs) maybe just for a month or two, but she or he pivots and adapts their businesses into something that turns out to be more profitable and less stressful happens all the time. Ian, we talk about it. It's like the seven-figure business almost by definition is pretty fragile, but the entrepreneurs who run them aren't. Yeah. Similar thing happened to us, Dan. We had to figure out a way forward when you're staring down the uh, idea of uh, getting another job, having to show up to the office, like, I'll do anything, man. I'll do anything. I'll start a new business. I'll quit this one. I'll start five more, whatever it takes. It's like the larger version of having a plane flight the next day. You will have the most productive day of your entire week if you got to get on the plane the next day. And it's often like finding a way to generate those constraints or back up the wall moments in your business that create the most innovation. So all that and a lot more on today's episode. Let's jump into it. Today's guest turned an in-person's event business, which obviously had a tough time during COVID, into a value-added reseller of software. A brilliant idea, and all will be explained. So I'm Dan Taylor, and I run a company. We're a Google for Education partner called AppsEvents. And how do you make money? Well, if you'd asked me that question pre-COVID, I would have given you a completely different answer. I mean, actually, you know what? I would have given you the same answer. I would have said we're a Google partner working with schools. But what we actually do is completely different. What we used to be is an events company. And what we are now is a software and services company. And that's all since COVID. And... What happened essentially at COVID for you? Can you describe to me, you know, I have an events business too, and I can remember the moment that Ian and I canceled DC Austin and thought that we wouldn't get our $75,000 back or $75,000 deposit back. And that was a reckoning moment. I don't know how much we thought about the events business in general. I think at the time I thought, well, this won't last too long, right? (laughs) Or something like that. What was it like for you having an in-person business and watching COVID sort of become the most important issue in the world? I think it was like what happened to you, but 10 times worse because (laughs) I had a lot of money laid out. And you know, you got to remember at that point, I was running something close to 300 events a year. Now, a lot of these are small events. And in February, I started hearing, you know, the noises about COVID like we all did. I think it was February. And things were starting to shut down. And I was like, oh, this, this could be a problem. 
I mean, I had to go to London in March, March 2020. I had to go to London. And we'd just taken on another partnership outside of Google. The first thing we'd done outside Google, it's an organization called ISTE in America, quite a prestigious education technology organization, very academic. They have done nothing outside of the US. And so we were going to be that. Well, we are. We are their partner outside of the US. So we'd invested a lot of money in this relationship. We'd flown a bunch of people from all around the world into London. They were going to train our trainers. We were going to establish the relationship. And while they were there, literally, it was like the last flight out of Casablanca, like the last day, <laughs> I'm not kidding, they had to cut off the, the training early at three in the afternoon, rush to the airport because that was the last flight they could get to America before the, the flights were canceled <laughs> and the travel ban. So it was like super dramatic. And that was the point. Everything went away, every single event. You were saying for, with Austin, you paid for the hotel. I didn't have that because I run my events at schools, but I had a lot of people that bought tickets. I had schools that had prepaid for things and I didn't have to refund that, but I did. So it wasn't like the business went to zero. It was like the business went to less than zero. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that you had been doing well for many years. So with that context, it sounds incredibly painful. I'm wondering if you can bring us to like, how does that fear or the reality of your business going to zero manifest? It was hard. If I take myself back to that time, I just had my second child, my daughter, who's two years old now. And you know, when you have kids, you suddenly start thinking about well, school fees and this and that. You realize you're not as wealthy as you thought you were, you know? So I would have that <laughs> to contend with, you know? Because when it was just me, I'm like, I'm cool, you know? You know, I don't have high costs. And so it was difficult. It was very stressful because it was just the unknown. I was trying to make myself think, okay, this is going to come back in two months or three months. But then the back of my mind was like, you know, this could last for, for a year. I made the mistake of watching TV and I've actually given up watching mainstream television news now because, you know, the COVID death counter on the screen and everything. And you're like, oh, yeah. and it directly affects your business. So it was like, psychologically, it was quite a taxing time. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to tell a sub story. You know, I had some money put away. I didn't have immediate financial concerns or anything like that. It was just seeing something I built up over so many years just disappeared. It was tough. When did you decide to sort of move into action versus just sort of looking at the clock and the calendar and waiting for everything to come back. I was kind of in, you know, there's one of those different stages of grief. I was like in the denial stage, I think for a couple of months, I was like, well, this is going to come back. I'll just sit tight. You know, <laughs> maybe it's a good chance to do some mountain biking and play golf. And, and then nothing was really happening. And it, it was actually getting worse. If you remember, it was just like, everything was complete. Asia just shut down completely. Yeah. It only just opened up. So after a couple of months, I started getting a bit more realistic. I've got a business partner now, a great guy called James Sayer, who um, he was he was a former math teacher and he'd, he'd worked for me for part-time for, for a long time, for like six years, you know, so we had an amazing relationship. He'd left his like completely cushy job working for an international school in Bangkok, you know, with a great salary to come full-time. And, but he was motivated to make it work as well. So we had two of us really, really focusing on this. I think two months, we really started thinking and focusing on what we had to do about it. Tell me about those conversations. Was he located in Bangkok while you were having these strategy calls, I presume? Yeah, he's still in Bangkok. He's going to be in DC VKK. Yeah, he was there. The team, you know, I had, you know, six people at the time, full time, still, still do amazingly. Um, wow. We were thinking of who we'd, you know, would we have to put people part time in the team or reduce headcount? We were having those conversations. We started thinking, what can we do? We can start doing online training. We were just brainstorming everything. We were looking at all the different options we could do, you know, and, and that was kind of how we got onto being a value-added reseller and, and, and selling software. That was one of, one of the ideas that came up. 
Can you talk about how it came up and what the hell is a value-added reseller? Sure. Well, I, I didn't know either. So how it came up was the first thing we did, if I take a step back, the first thing we did is like, okay, we've got to do something. So we started really focusing on our YouTube channel. We had a, quite a successful YouTube channel. We were getting about 20,000 views a month. And we were like, look, we've got this team anyway. We're paying them. Let's start putting out a ton of free content on YouTube because that way, you know, we'll create goodwill. Everyone will watch it. When things come back, we can, you know, get paid work with people. It keeps us busy. So we started doing this. Can, and then, can I stop you there? This is exciting. Sure. So 20,000 views a month is a niche audience and it's a B2B audience, which is interesting to me. You're not building like Dan Taylor, Guru, you know, <laughs> Mr. Beast or whatever part two, this is a, a niche channel. Can you give me an example? And maybe we'll play some of the kind of content that was bringing you sales and what the strategy behind that was. Sure. Well, the content was all focused on people who work at schools, educating them about Google tools. Back in my classwork page, let's create a demo group assignment. We're going to click on create assignments. Here, we're going to give it a title. So let's call this demo group work. And then some instructions. So an example would be, there's something called Google Classroom, you know, classroom management tool. It would be, here's a new feature in Google Classroom. How do you use it in your school? It'd be for Google through administrators who are the guys behind the scenes, the tech guys in schools. How do you manage users in Google Workspace? That was the kind of content. So you had, you know, you guys are sitting there in these strategy calls and you're basically like, we got this customer list. We've got this YouTube channel, this marketing channel. And so you decide to start amping up the marketing channel, which is an interesting decision to me because that sounds like more cost, more work, but with not a clear product to sell them anymore because the events had gone away. So walk me through your thinking at that time. My thinking was just that I'm paying these people. They've got to do something. Let's just do this till we think of something else to do. Do you know what I mean? That, that was mm -hmm. my thinking. What happened was... I started seeing people buying ads because we turned off monetization on our YouTube channel, which, which used to mean that there was no ads against your channel. But then Google started putting ads on your channel, even if you turned off monetization. And so then I started to see different Google partners putting ads against our videos. And quite a few of them were reselling Google software. Google had recently introduced a paid version of Workspace for Schools. And I was like, hang on a minute, people are using our videos to sell their products. Why don't we look at what they're selling? You know? Can you describe the concept of a value-added reseller? Sure. A value-added reseller or a VAR is essentially a business model where you sell somebody else's software and you keep an ongoing percentage. So typically you will make between 20 to 30% of the revenue ongoing. If you take Google Workspace for kind of a medium-sized business, or a school or something, it means you give or take, you, you'll make $1,000 a year for a customer, you know, but you'll make that $1,000 a year forever, Dan, if you, if you pick the right product. I mean, Dan, I'm guessing you use Google Workspace in your company. Am, am I right? I don't even know that it's called that. Is that where I have like calendar and in my admin panel? Yeah, it used to be called G Suite. It was called Google Apps oh. before that and it's not yep. called Workspace. Okay, so I use Workspace. How likely are you to ever stop that subscription? Uh, very unlikely. Although my Gmail interface just changed yesterday. And I'm like, come on, guys. I've had this since 2004. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I, you're right. I, so, I would, exactly. It's very unlikely that we're going to get rid of this software. 
So a value-added reseller is somebody basically sells something like that. It, it might be that they might be reselling QuickBooks. And, and there's different ways, you know, you can, I can get into it. You, some of the selling is direct with Google, some of it you work through a distributor, but essentially you, you make the same margin. You sell the software and value-added part of, of value-added reseller means you can sell your services on top. So you can sell ongoing support services. You can do setup services. You can do customization. That's kind of what the business model is. How do you convince customers to pay extra margin to you for software that's available on a website somewhere? Well, the thing is they don't pay any extra. They pay the, exactly the same as they would go direct. The company is like is getting an extra sales channel and which they're not paying a bunch of salespeople for. So they're effectively paying you that 20% cost themselves. So they're making less, but the customer has the same price. And, and some software is only sold via resellers and distributors. Like for example, Google Workspace for Education, they don't sell it direct to schools. They only sell it by partners. And a lot of companies do that. And the reason is because? It's an easy sales method. They're not employing a team of salespeople. They don't have to do anything. Someone else is doing all the marketing. Someone else is doing all the sales. And they're getting, you know, 80% of the money. Are you getting paid your commission from Google? No, how it works with a value-added reseller is you essentially purchase the licenses. And this is pretty much the same across all the companies, but if you do Microsoft or accounting software or anything, you buy the licenses from the company, from Google or Microsoft, and you resell them for a higher price to the end customer and you keep the margin. Got it. Got it. And sorry if I'm being tedious here. It's just very interesting. So if I'm then the IT guy at a school district in Idaho and I bought this from you, my license for call it 30 seats or whatever, and I want to cancel it five years from now, do I call you or do I call Google? You call us. And it's the same, you know, I mean, we started doing this for businesses as well, which is, which is a much better market. You know, schools are tough, but yeah, they would contact us. And the great thing here is though, once you start selling software to companies, you can start selling other software because companies love having a single point of contact. It makes life very easy. The other advantage is you've got a reason to get on the phone anytime with your customer. You can be like, hey, you know, there's a new feature. I want to have a quick chat about it. You know, you're not making a sales call or a sales email. You've got a reason mm. to check in anytime. And at that point, when they're buying your, your software, because here's the thing, right? You think, okay, I'm going to make $1,000 a year from one school. Now, that, that's not a lot of money, really, you know, but if that's giving you $1,000 every year, then it's just a case of how many customers can I get? Can I get a hundred? Can I get a thousand? Because if a thousand means you're making a million dollars a year, you know? Yeah. So uh, it, it does build up. And, and I think because I had no time, to, I had lots of time because I wasn't doing anything else. I put the effort in to, to sell this to people because even though it wasn't an efficient use of my time, it was a way to make money and get something started. Whether you're a founder, a recruiting manager, or just the person who does everything around the office that's also hiring the next person, we've got stress-free ways to help you find your next great remote employee. Check it out. Click through on your phone. I made a chart that shows all of our products for SaaS and e-commerce companies seeking to save time and build elite teams. Try our flat rate recruiting product. We have a 90% success rate. For teams who need to hire quickly, try our pre-vetted candidates. Right now on our website, we've got over 200 potential team members that our experienced recruiting team has already spoken with and are looking to go work at companies like yours. And for companies seeking to maximize candidate flow and direct it by skill, location, level of experience, all while filtering out spam candidates, you got to post a job on our incredible platform. 
go ahead and post a job over at Dynamite Jobs and click promote. That starts at just a few hundred dollars. All of our clients receive full email and phone support so your campaigns won't ever stall out. Check out our site or schedule a call today. Dynamite Jobs, the hiring platform for remote first companies. One of the interesting things I've always in my mind, I've talked about, if you have people that have bought like a foundation from you, then you know you can do what SaaS thinkers would call expansion revenue. And you've described another way on this yes. show. Can you talk to me about how that works and what sort of possibilities people could imagine for themselves there? Because my, my kind of general sense is that, say, if you have 10 customers paying you $1,000 a year, that like, you know, between one to three of those customers might be willing to pay you $10,000 a year. And I'm wondering how you think about that. It's funny you mentioned SaaS as a starting point because I've done two, two SaaS projects and it's kind of like the, the boulevard of broken SaaS dreams in, in, in my case, you know? <laughs> I mean, they both still exist and technically we did sell them both, but, you know, I didn't get rich out of it. You know, if I'd focused my time on something else, it would have made more money for sure, you know? But selling it, a SaaS is incredibly hard. The payoff can be huge. You know, it's a risk reward thing. But, but with this, you keep 20 to 30% of the money that the SaaS will make and, and you don't have to do any of the development or all, all that kind of thing. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And, and the expansion revenue, exactly right. There's some customers willing to pay you more. So that's when we started doing support contracts where we will support their admins because we're, kind of we're from a training education background. So we started focusing on... They can book, they get a block of hours every month where they're tech guys, you know, and we work through, you know, we solve their intermediate problems, we give them the updates, but also we work through a program of helping them. And with that, I mean, it's effectively from the customer that would pay us a thousand a year, we're now making 10,000 a year. We're making 10 times the profit from selling a support contracts. And I mean, that's priced to the 50% margin, you know, we're, we're very... Tell me how you create a support contract. I love that idea. How we do it is we... Um, Actually, I haven't invented this. A lot of people do this. We effectively sell blocks of hours. So we effectively say, you're going to get four hours a month of us on a Zoom call and we'll do prep before that call. You know, we'll, you'll fill in a sheet. And then very simply, if I'm going to pay the tech person to support that $150 an hour, I'm going to charge $300 an hour. I'm just going to have a 50% margin. I'm going to keep that across everything. And then in addition, we're going to give them a private support forum. I'm not bothering with tickets and all that stuff. We might have to do that when we get bigger, but I'm keeping it really simple. They get a private group chart. They can put anything in there, we'll respond. And that's priced in on what we pay the tech support person. So really, I'm pricing it on a number of hours per month and I'm pricing it on 50% margin. Is that a subscription that they purchase? Like, I yeah. think we'll need five hours a month. And so now I'm paying that every month automatically. Yeah, it's just like SaaS, you know, it's just a SaaS model. They just pay a monthly fee and there's all kinds of dodgy stuff. Companies will try to lock in customers. We didn't do any of that. You can cancel month to month, give them every reason to be happy and not, and not feel like locked into you. How do you sell into this? Like, tell me about, like one of the things you mentioned that I know we're feeling like we have like all this cool technology. And so sometimes we'll bury ourselves in like the tech because like, you know, selling feels like more emotionally difficult. And one of the things about your story is you said you kind of got your mojo back. I'm curious about what that process was all about. Definitely. This put me back into sales mode. And now I actually, I really enjoy sales, you know. I spend majority of my time thinking about prospecting and sales channels. We were lucky that 
we had a good audience. We've been doing this business over 10 years, working with exactly the same kind of customers. We know I'm friends with a lot of these people. We know them. And that's a real suggestion for anyone out there who might be jumping from market to market is if you spend time with one customer segment, you get to know them really well. You've got a relationship. You've done things for them. you know. So I had a, a good network to get started, but it was still, I was selling a completely new product. I had no idea. So it was still slow, but that, that was kind of the initial sales. After that, I've gone through a few things. I've done a lot of direct email. I've kind of managed to get an army of Upworkers now, you know, scraping websites for contacts, doing research, manual research of scrapers, different things, getting email and doing a lot of direct email. That works quite well for me. And then the YouTube channel, you know, using the YouTube as, as a sales channel is, is working as well. One of the most remarkable things about the story is, you know, your business got freaking smashed during yeah. COVID. And now it sounds like you like the business you built in response to COVID better than the one you had before. Is that just because you're making more money? Is it a different kind of process or a different kind of profits you're seeing? Why is the new business better than the old one? New business is so much better and I enjoy it so much more. It's better because, I mean, if, if you run events, you know, they're, they're great fun. You get a lot of energy, but, but there's also quite a bit of stress involved. I think you'd agree. Yeah. You've got to sell tickets again. It's a new event every year. You're never sure what's going to happen. You've speakers cancel, uh, you get the venue mess up. There's a lot of factors that go into running an event. And the thing about this model, the software and services model is like, I'm, I've got the same relationships with the same customers. I'm still, you know, speaking to the same people I was speaking to before, but it's more online. You know, we, we meet in person, but it's online, which is great. I finally got almost a completely online business and it's recurring <laughs> revenue. You know, it's, I think I could get rid of most, of, I'm not going to do this for anyone listening, but I could get rid of most of my team now and just run this a few hours a week myself if I had to, you know what I mean? You mentioned that, I mean, there's this big existential question for you now is like you used to host an event every single week. What are you going to do now? Events are starting to come back. We're going to run some events, but I have no desire. I think I want to do two to three big events a year maximum, a few small ones, and then try to do the rest online. You know, events are a great way to meet people, great way to build relationships. You know, I, I don't ever want to get out of the event space, but I don't want to run a primarily events company. Now I want to run a software and services company. That's so interesting. Here, I got a shiny object. <laughs> I mean, because I remember on your last show, you were describing like this battle of risk. It was yeah. like a, the board game of the globe and, and you had a few key competitors and you were trying to have market preeminence in all these different countries and it was this important cash flow for you. That's all going to come back, presumably. And you know, it sounds like you're willing to concede some of this battle. Is there not an opportunity to bring in a business partner that that would be their opportunity and like have them vest in over four or five years or something? Definitely. You know, it's interesting about um, competition because yeah, if you listen to the last podcast, I had one a uh, big competitor. They, had, they actually crashed and burned in fairly spectacular fashion. So we ended up actually standing victorious on the... On the on what the... happened there? Do you have any sense for why they failed? I think that's interesting to hear about businesses that don't make it too. Yeah, they grew too big too fast. They thought they had a few really big contracts that they didn't get. As, as far as I know, you know, I was looking at their team pictures and they were all there in their branded Patagonia uh, fleeces, standing in a, in a ski resort in California, you know, 50 <laughs> people. And I was like, that's got to cost a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, your story here, I, I got to come back to this theme of like entrepreneurs and startups as a market. You completely changed a great business overnight and turn it into a better business, you know, of course, of a couple of years. 
and you did it with six staff and you're making incredible money and have an incredible lifestyle. You can travel all around the world. Like the entrepreneur is anti-fragile in that way, but our organizations aren't. And I think I just want to flag up like how vulnerable our companies are. That doesn't mean that entrepreneurship is vulnerable as a career path, but it does mean that think twice about having us as your customers again. Exactly right. And, and, and also on the other side of things, I would say think twice about going after the enterprise market at the top end because we've looked at that. And then you, you're competing against all these companies like Tech Data and Ingram Micro and huge publicly listed companies that have armies of salespeople. You know, you're competing against Accenture. You're competing against these people that are going in and they want the big contract, you know, and, mm. and, that's, and that's, as, that's just as hard as going after the, you know, the digital nomad market. One of the things uh, that we've been doing, like a tactic, it's such an obvious thing. I wish I would have done more of it earlier in my career is that, you know, you poke around the web and you find people working at a company that like does something that you want your company to do. And you just like offer them 300 bucks to jump on the phone. Yeah. And, and they'll do it. You know, in a previous life, you could talk to like the events manager at whatever large company and, and they'd gladly do that on a Saturday morning or whatever for 300 bucks because they probably yeah. make like, you know, 95 grand a year. So that's meaningful money. Plus people want to you know, share their knowledge. So someone listens to this podcast and they're like, man, I want to be a VAR. That sounds really interesting because I have a little bit of an audience, whatever. They, call, they write you, Dan Taylor at appsevents.com and they say, here's 300 bucks, Dan, maybe more. Jump on the phone. Can you help me become a VAR? Like, What sort of basic advice do you have about this business model and how people might pursue it as an opportunity? I think there's two things you got to know. One is it takes a while to get registered with these companies, you know, there's a whole big corporate process that we're not used to dealing with, you know, anti-bribery questionnaires, uh, financial checks, et cetera. You've got to get through a lot of crap to get registered with these companies. And then it's two things. One thing is you've got to work out how you're going to get these customers. And I would say in the beginning, you just do the manual approach. You just contact companies directly. You know, you just, you just accept it's going to take you a few weeks to get your first thousand dollars, but it's going to get, get easier after that, you know? The third thing I would say to people doing this is keep your customers ridiculously happy. Go over the top in how you support them because that's how you get them to refer you to other people as a VAR, you know? They can contact you instead of the end customer and the end software provider and you can help them out. That's worth a million dollars, you know? So the third thing I would advise people is really go over the top, even though, you know, you might be making $400 a year from this customer. It doesn't seem like it's worth a lot of effort to put into that $400. But you know, if they get you two more customers and each of those two customers get you another two, it really starts to pay dividends. I think that's good advice because they're essentially like cash flowing. It's a cash flowed marketing expense. You know, so... Exactly. Yeah, because they're hanging out at the golf club on the weekend or whatever. And that's how a lot of these <laughs> sales get done. And that's extremely expensive sale for you to make internally. So I think that's a... Pennywise, pound foolish, sometimes decision entrepreneurs can make. I'm assuming you've seen a lot of VAR business models over the past couple of years. Is there like maybe one or two you could like anonymize for us and give us the basic structure of another example of how people get this done? I think the structure is fairly similar. I mean, there's a bunch of terms that are thrown out there. The other one that's closely connected to VAR is MSP, managed service provider. And MSP is kind of the terms are a bit interchangeable, but essentially it means, you know, you generally will sell an ongoing support contract and you'll support all, all the different software they're buying through you. You'll still be a VAR, they'll be buying the software through you, but you're really focusing 
on the sort of support contract. And I think that's kind of the one business model I've seen people move into. And I think that's the way to scale it. If you want to be a, you know, an eight-figure business, that I think, or a high seven-figure business, I think that's the way to scale it to become more of an MSP. Why is that? Is it just because those contracts are so expensive? Well, just because, like I mentioned before, you know, you can charge 10 times as much for a support contract than you can potentially from the margin you're making for the software. Because, you know, the customer, you're only keeping 20%, but the customer's paying, you know, five times that. They're paying a lot. Compared to that, your support contract might look quite cheap. But with a support contract, it's all coming to you, you know? It's not, yeah. it's not going to their, to their software company. So a managed service provider might position content on the web towards a certain niche of mid-sized company and then say like, look, IT guy, if you're sweating bullets, like all you need to do is like have a contract with us and like we'll make your life a lot easier, essentially. Exactly right. And remember, you know, typically with this model, you're not talking to the business owner, you know, like if you're dealing with us, you're talking to a business owner, you're talking to someone who's got a budget and they want to make their life easier and they want to look good to their manager. You're supporting a kind of senior person in a, in a medium-sized business. That's kind of where you've got to get your head around in terms of marketing this. I, I love that because like I can think about different customer segments and I'm sure a lot of the audience can relate right now. Like you said the words and that person has a budget and it's like, wow, I have no idea what that is. Like I haven't exactly. seen one. <laughs> exactly. You can see it with event tickets too and like corporate training. Like there's an example of this wonderful membership site called chiefs.com and their target market is female executives that have been in the workforce for 15 years or more. And their membership is something like $6,000 a year. Wow. And what's beautiful about it is like you get into these C-suites and you talk to people. At that point, you're dealing with like public money or shareholder money or silly money or whatever. And like those companies want them to spend $5,000 a year on corporate training or personal development. And so the difference between that and like the boiler room, like coaching two, you know, three times your business next year, pay me 25 grand or pay me six grand is just a completely different sales process. And um, also, you know, the, the way it's absurd to people like me and you and most people listen to this podcast, how these businesses work, that like somebody will get a budget in a company and they want to use everything to use that budget because if they don't, their budget will get reduced next year. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really interesting. Dan, is there anything that you want to say about your story to the listeners of this show that maybe we haven't touched on just yet? You can change. I was very set in my ways, you know, and, and I switched the business in, in two years. Like you mentioned before, you know, it's, you're never too old to change. You're never too established to change. You know, don't, don't take it the other way and be the shiny object guy, but market things come or you see a better opportunity. You know, it's, it's always possible to change. Big shout out to Dan Taylor. You can check out what he's up to at appsevents.com. Dan's always been really open and generous, especially as a part of the DC community. He's been around for a long time now, and you know I've seen him help others, and Ian and myself as well. He's always been very generous with his knowledge and his time, and I had a wonderful time having this conversation today. Any uh, final thoughts, Ian? Dan Taylor actually is in town right now in Barcelona, so uh, it was kind of a bit of serendipity, Glad to have him here, and uh, thanks for being on the show, Dan. Yeah, love the uh, the evolution to a more online business model that doesn't depend on in-person events. But like you said, Dan's in town right now. We have a DC Junto here tonight in Barcelona, 
And we just spent the last two or three hours hammering out some of the final details of this year's DCBKK. And, you know, there's just some magic to getting people in the same room together. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Thanks for listening. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.